Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. kids at 15, 16, 17. However, you can look at it by age, you can look at it by preparedness. Was I prepared to have a child? Did I have a, a career? No. Did I have a house? No. Did I even have a car? Uh, no, I did not. A lot of what we do for children is designed for the expediency of a bureaucracy, right? Why does a class have the teacher up front and all the chairs face forward and they test on Friday and study on Monday. It's the weird expectation that the kids are just going to come to whatever we do and if they don't, something's wrong with them. I think we do a great job of rewarding the absolute gold medal winners, but we don't do a great job of maximizing the utility and the enjoyment that average people get out of life because still that's who most of the people are so a lot of times you ask kids you know what do you want to be when you grow up and that has the uh, inbuilt notion that the job that you have is your identity right and that again that assumes that the person will move to perfectly fit the job but instead you could say what do you want to do or what problem do you want to solve right you don't have to know the name of the job yet you have to know what do you want to do what do you enjoy there's so much opportunity out here so much unmet need that I think you can find something that fits you so perfectly that you can never be supplanted you can be the best you Hi, everyone. Welcome to another week of the Face World podcast. I am your host, Fei Wu. I am here today to guide you through another episode of Face World, celebrating unsung heroes and self made artists, people and things I find interesting and would like to share with you. But I know time is the most precious thing, so I thank you for choosing to spend it with me. Today on the show, I'm joined by Jeff Gray, also known as Professor Gray from the Platform Podcast. The Platform is a show about, oh, let me see, book signing, polyamory, sex, drugs, groundhogs, killer whales, and sharks, and so much more. Jeff is a very talented and interesting person to talk to. He is a father, a record producer, studio engineer, podcaster, as well as human services, nonprofit consultant. Our conversation travels through the most unexpected, unscripted places. Jeff and I met at the podcast garage in Brighton, Massachusetts, during an event featuring guest speaker, Radio Diaries founder and executive producer, Joe Richmond who is a Peabody award-winning producer and reporter whose pioneering series Teenage Diaries brought the voices of teenagers to a national audience on NPR's All Things Considered. 
When Jeff recorded his teenage diary back in 1998, he referred to himself as African. He had a black father and a white mother. And like many teenagers, he was trying to figure out who he was. Nearly 20 years later, now he calls himself Mulatto. In fact, he is the founder of something called the Mulatto History Month that celebrates the unique experiences of mulattoes. By the way, it's from February 15th to March 15th every year. Our conversation travels beyond our lives as podcasters and really delves into history, geography, race, and education. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Hey, quick announcement. FaceWorld recently released a mini-series called The Freelancer's Starter Kit. Two episodes are already in and can be found right before this one. I cover an array of questions related to freelancing, often not discussed in popular media by prominent teachers and gurus. Things such as setting up your own company, how to be more effective on the job, how to discipline yourself and manage your time wisely. What about health insurance for you and your family while working as a freelancer? You get the idea. I welcome you to check it out, leave your comment, and ask me any questions you have. For now, without further ado, please welcome Jeff Gray to the Face World Podcast. about growing up in China for the longest time in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there were no other kids uh, around us other than we're just Chinese. In fact, I recently, I watched a, a commercial on YouTube and really got me. It was from uh, 23andMe. Do you know mm-hmm. what that is? The, the DNA testing thing, yeah. Have you done it before? I have not. So I watched it and it was just quickly after, soon after the election. And I watched it and it was very touching, even though I don't, relate to anybody necessarily in that commercial. So I immediately ordered my kit and my mom said, oh, your results would be pretty boring. Cause be- <laughs> <laughs> it's going to say Chinese. <laughs> Chinese. <laughs> I, I thought it was uh, kind of hilarious in a way. Right. And- but even, but even that, a lot of these things are arbitrary, right? We're looking uh, you know, for the listeners that can't see, we're in a room where there's a, a world map on the wall. And so we're, you know, I keep glancing at it and looking at China. But of course, China is not real. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you'd have been born a certain amount of miles to the north, you'd be Mongolian. Mm-hmm. But Mongolia is not real. Yeah. Do you know just, what I mean? It's just a label. A little right? Fu- right. A little further, Russia. Russia is not real. Mm-hmm. And you can actually see. And then, it, you know, if I was born in China, I'd be Chinese too. Yeah. But I would still be me. So in that sense... You know, I, I believe I heard that, for example, in the West, we just say Asia. Mm-hmm. So when, when we say Asia, when, I, when everyone I know says Asia, they say someone's Asian, they mean they're Chinese or Chinese looking. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we don't mean East Indian, even though those people are Asian, too, because, again, Asia is not real. And of course, in our heads, the Chinese are like the closest cousin to the Japanese. Mm-hmm. But I guess, first of all, culturally, that's not necessarily true. But outside of that, even genetically, that's not true. That mm-hmm. the Japanese are not closely, are not as closely related to the Chinese as we would kind of, you know, blithely assume based mm-hmm. on yellow skin. Mm-hmm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. When I was growing up, I had no idea about anything about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Because to me, white people are white. So it's not real. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Dorchester and Roxbury of Boston. Wow. And 
what was it like for you to kind of grow up um, you know, in Boston in a particular neighborhood and how often does this come up or really impact your life on a regular basis? I mean, impact my life, I don't know. It comes up a lot because I look Hispanic, right? I look like a Puerto Rican. I live in a neighborhood where a lot of people are some kind of Hispanic, probably Puerto Rican or from the Dominican Republic. And so it's an assumption that's constantly made, just like, Faye, if you were, uh, you know, if you were just full Swedish mm. and you just looked like you looked, but you just were full Swedish and then you're living in Sweden and people are constantly looking at, you know what I mean? They're constantly baffled. Yeah. And you, go, you go, oh, no, my name's, uh, you know, Fjord Jurgensen. And they're like, they're thinking, no, mm, I know what, I know what people look like. Mm-hmm. And where you're adopted, right? Or, you're at something, yeah. And so, you know, it, it came up a lot when I was younger, it was a way bigger deal. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, black and white are the arch rivals, right? Like the, the Yankees and the Red Sox or the Hatfields and McCoys mm-hmm. of American society. It comes up a lot, it was an oddity when I was younger, right? Mm-hmm. So, people would so they say, What are you? So, the pattern goes like this they go. They talk to me for a little while. They think they know I'm Spanish. They talk to me for long enough, and they find out my name's Jeff Rogers, and they go, oh, so what are you? They, I can feel them easing into it. What are you? Mm. And then I say, oh. <laughs> Ease into it. Now, you can feel it, because then people want to ask, but they don't. They know that, like, that can be touchy, but mm. they want to find out why do you look one way and talk another way, mm. and your name is so American. Why? Mm. And then I'll say, I'm mulatto, I'm mixed. For a long time, I used to just try to say black because I felt like, I feel like a black person. I was kind of raised mm-hmm. black. And then I say, well, whatever I say, then they go, oh, who's black? Your mother, or your father. And they try to, they're trying to figure out what category I belong in. Meaning they'll go, I've had this a lot. Who's white? Your mother, or your father. My mother's white. Oh, your mother's white. Okay, so you're really white. But so interesting. How does that make a difference? I don't know. That's their thing. Mm-hmm. But it, it happens so often that I know that that's a thing in people's heads. Mm-hmm. And, and different cultures have it. Like, I know the Jews say, you're Jewish from your mother, yeah, right? Yeah. So people look at it like that. But people go both ways. People go, who's black? Your mother or your father? I say, my father. They go, oh, you're really black because your father's black. Interesting. There's no pattern except for that people are trying to say, like, what are you really? I don't know if you know, but when you fill out, like, a form mm-hmm. and it says, are you black, white, Pacific Islander, other? If you put other, mm-hmm. somebody from the, the, the home office just picks which one you go in. There really is no other. I heard about this. You know it really kind of shocked me. Right. And so they have to categorize you. And people feel that way, too. There's categories that people kind of have to have to be comfortable. So that comes up a lot. And so for years, I, too, wanted to be in the black category. Right. And in many ways, I am. I got it. My, my mother is an only child. Uh, her mother is an only child. I don't have any cousins, aunts or uncles that are white. I have 10 aunts and uncles that are black and, you know, a hundred cousins, right? And I grew up in black neighborhood and went to black schools. So I feel like a black guy. Mm-hmm. But part of being black is people can look at you and know that you're black. And that I do not have. I slowly had to realize, no, you really are other. Regardless of what people would put you on on a form, there really is an other, Jeff, and you are it. Wow. That's a lot of information for me to process. <laughs> And it's particularly because you didn't grow up yeah. in our informal caste system of America. I'm sure you, you, you know, China has its own. Mm. That would just be as bad. Like I truly, you said, can't you said I'm, you really said to me just now? Mm. Well, I, you know, I'm I'm half Cantonese and half Mandarin. 
Mm. I'm like, yo, that couldn't be more the same thing to me. Mm. Mm. I see no distinction at all. I, and I, I, up until 10 minutes ago, I thought the only thing was language. I understood those two languages. Yeah. I didn't, it should have been obvious to me because of human nature, but I didn't understand at all yeah. that it was like some kind of culture clash. Like, oh, Mandarin always go left first. Oh, Cantonese <laughs> always go right first. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you're helping me learn more about me, kind of my culture. There are a lot of things we don't question just because I wonder why we don't question them. Maybe they weren't. It's uh, the default. Right? You grew up with the default. Yeah. And the only time you, you find out that there's an issue with that is when something breaks the boundary or doesn't fit the category, right? Yeah, until I was in sixth or seventh grade. Uh, growing up in Beijing, you're, uh, you're Mandarin, right? That's the label. I remember one of my school teachers head teacher said to me that, Faye, you obviously look Cantonese, obviously, you know? And that really hit me when I was 12 or 13 because it never occurred to me that I looked a different way. And she made it sound like not only she felt that way, but all the classmates- Everyone knew, they all knew something you didn't know. And what's crazy, again, and it shows how arbitrary these distinctions are. You know, one of the main American uh, kind of like stereotypes of Chinese people is that you all look alike. So the idea, that I can tell someone's Mandarin by looking at them goes against my like upbringing culture, you know what I mean? But of course, with human nature, I can tell whether somebody from is from Roxbury or Dorchester by how they dress. <laughs> I can't, but you, that sounds silly, right? It is silly, but I'm such a native that I could like, oh, look at his, he's wearing Adidas, oh, classic Mattapan. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but really, I can. But then meanwhile, overseas, you know, they go, well, people from America are either from New York, Texas or California. You know what I mean? Because you see the broad stereotypes from, you know, from America, Chinese people are, they do ancient Chinese uh, herbs and and karate and food and chopsticks. The end. I I ran out of stuff already. Yeah. Where did you learn about that? Is through movies or? Movies and TV. I, I went to Boston Public Schools and there was, there's some Asian kids, but again, there's not enough where I would know who was from Beijing, mm. but there's enough where I understood like, oh, Chinese New Year's in February or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Like I know that much. You brought up a good point, right? For the longest time, I, not just me personally, but Chinese people or Chinese population struggle with one fact that um, as a country, as big as it is, bigger than any other country near us, you know, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of Russia, that we haven't really been able to brand ourselves uh, very well. What mm. I mean by that is chopsticks, um, you know, things that you've seen. People constantly assume it's Japanese because mm. as, as a country as small as Japan from, you know, car, you know, their automobile industry, this and that, they've really done a really good job branding themselves and helping people make the assumption anything related to, you know, certain type of food, martial arts and just crafty things are all Japanese. So how do, I mean, it's a long-winded question, but how do you think we could, we should, or learn more about other cultures? What can we do to kind of enable that? Like if through our own generation and the future, the future ones. A kind of morbid, uh, uh, a kind of morbid quote from jo- Joseph Stalin is that one death is a tragedy, but a million is a statistic, right? Mm. And although that's morbid, it kind of points out the fact that people don't really learn through like if you said to me, like, well, you know, China's the number seven manufacturer of microchips in the world. Like, who cares? But instead, if there's a Chinese Steve Jobs, then the idea will suddenly become that China is a land that produces a guy like Steve Jobs. So in my experience, when you look around, the way that 
any anything kind of gets branded is they have a few individuals mm-hmm. that kind of break through. I think to some degree, it seems to me that uh, the Chinese eschew and kind of block out um, individualism. And so like Steve Jobs, the idea, even though it's a lot of it's BS, the idea that this rugged individualist guy is a titan of industry himself and his whole company is it's like him. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like the Chinese way. Mm-hmm. That like one guy, like superstar guys. People. She gives you a hug, tell you she loves you, but you've been drinking too much. But you don't quit, instead, you rather fuss than take it to the point to where she can't get up. And it makes you feel sick, it breaks your heart. Cause you never meant for it to go this far. Plus, you got a kid who has to live with the scars. So, surprisingly, I think that shift has uh, begun a while ago. What I mean by that is has become more prominent maybe in the past 10 to 15 years. Mm. There may be a lot of brands uh, that I'm not going to start naming out similar to Apple, but they're based in China. And you might not know those brands because they, like Lenovo, I think they recently sold that to, not recently, they sold that to Mm. IBM. But there are many brands are at the sort of the microchip level that as part of the computer that these guys are incredibly successful. And what I noticed is that there's a shift in the Chinese population to go after, to really look up to these individuals, mm. such as the um, guy from, uh, the founder of uh, Alibaba. Right, uh, right. You know, uh, online manufacturing. Um, and it's just really fascinating that people notice that they want to step up and they want to speak up. So, I mean, it, it definitely, that's definitely the way, you know, John Wayne, let's say, is in a bunch of cowboy movies. Mm-hmm. And then people become the avatar yeah. of certain groups, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so... You really, that's why even sports teams have mascots, Mm -hmm. an individual that is the embodiment of what this team is. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way, I think that's the way people kind of operate, right? The the reason why, you know, in the United States, the president has a lot of power. He's the executive of one, you know, one branch of government, but also Supreme Court and the Congress is, and Senate is the other branch of government. But the difference is the president is one guy. Mm -hmm. So because he's one guy, when the economy goes good or bad, people tend to blame him. They don't blame the 400 members of Congress because the, the, the responsibility is diffused. So when you look at it in the same way, the way that, that we were going to know, the way that other countries are going to know China for anything is when a, one Chinese person becomes like the face of that, mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? for, for better or for worse. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's how it works just because I think that's how people's kind of, they attach Mm-hmm. in that individual way. They attach yeah. to individual personalities way more than the fact that you might say, oh, well, actually, China invented the chopstick or whatever. Like, no one cares. But instead, if one dude becomes like mm-hmm. Chopstick Chang, mm-hmm. then everybody knows him. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how powerful storytelling is. And at the end of the day, as much we categorize people and become more mm-hmm. isolated, I think we do you know, we do connect at that level. Well, I remember many, many episodes ago, maybe a hundred episodes ago, um, one of my mentors, Madeline Lee, described there's a commercial and there's a video about, you know, the astronaut out in space and looking back at, um, you know, planet Earth mm-hmm. and realized there's no you or me, there's only us, right? right? Uh, we're in this together. And mm-hmm. I, I thought that was really powerful. Um, you are such a fascinating person. We met at um, Podcast Garage in uh, Brighton 
Massachusetts, listeners who don't live in Mass. Um, but we met through a very special event um, mm-hmm. about radio diaries. So mm-hmm. um, I had the chance to listen to the, that segment of it. And mm-hmm. I actually went back to listen to other episodes related to uh, teen diaries as well. Mm-hmm. It was so fascinating. But could you tell us in your own words about what, what, how did it get started? What was that mm-hmm. experience like for you? So Radio Diaries was a, um, there's a guy named Joe Richmond, great guy, he's a radio producer and kind of documentarian. And years ago, many, many years ago, he uh, he was looking for a, a subject for his, you know, teenage Radio Diaries. And it'll be different things like, I am a uh, illegal or undocumented immigrant, or I have Tourette syndrome, or I don't know, I'm 200 pounds overweight, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to this program called Youth Voice Collaborative. And and somehow Joe got hooked up and he asked them, did they have any teens that could talk? They asked me, uh, you know, well, what would you talk about, Jeff? And I said, I don't know. He, you know, Joe probed my life. And uh, I could basically talk about either being a juvenile delinquent, which I was, or talk about being mulatto. And that's what he, he liked mulatto. So that's what it ended up being. And he gave me a tape recorder and a, a huge heavy tape recorder and a mic. And he said, I'll pay you 25 bucks a tape. You have to talk on these tapes about your life. It was like pulling teeth because I just I wasn't doing what I had even committed to do. And a few times he was like, look, man, either you do this or I'm going elsewhere. But finally he beat and conjoled and, and charmed me into doing it. And he made a it's like, you know, 12 minute documentary on what it was like for me to be mulatto. And at one point, you know, we, we talked about all the different names there are for for, you know, being mulatto. And I said, oh, you know, there's gray and there's zebra. Uh, and I said, African, because someone had called me a African. And he latched onto that. He thought it was so funny. And uh, so it, it ended up being called Jeff Rogers African. And even today, if you Google African, I come up first. So you're welcome. Wow. Um, I have a lot of questions for your uh, production company and your podcast as mm-hmm. well. But I do want to kind of just probe a little bit more about that experience because you are in your early 30s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that tape. Mm-hmm. happened and was recorded uh, pretty much half a lifetime ago. Yeah. And you sounded you sounded mature. I was surprised by how mature and how, uh, you know, comfortable, almost like that was something that you did, but clearly you weren't a producer or a recorder at the time. Well, I didn't know what NPR was, okay? <laughs> so yeah. it was going to be on NPR, but I didn't know what it was, right? I think my mother finally told me it's like Channel 2 for the radio or, you know, so it's like PBS for the radio. And that's how I kind of came to understand it. But I didn't know and I didn't care. I wasn't doing it thinking it would be something. And I wasn't doing it thinking even about the money. It's probably just because they asked me to do it. And I like talking. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I had any preconceived notions. At one point, I went to WGBH or whatever, and I, I got interviewed by somebody. And for all I know, it was goddamn Tom Ashbrook, because I just remember it was an old white guy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my mother told me, like, oh, you got to go there. And I'm like, where is it? She's like, it's on the green line. Like, the green line? And all I knew is I didn't, I like, I didn't want to do it. So I didn't know it was a big deal. I didn't. And then it ended up becoming somewhat of a big deal. Let me say, it's a big deal because of Joe Richmond, not because of me. Mm-hmm. Because he's the guy that took however many 20 hours of tapes or whatever he did and turned it into this thing that people go like, oh, my God, you were so profound. But I was 16, so I probably said so much bullshit, too. Yeah. But the thing is, Joe Richmond just leaves that on the cutting room floor and makes it sound like I'm Socrates at 16. But I doubt that was true. 
you know, he chiseled it down into this thing. And his radio diaries it became kind of a big deal. Kind of a, a reality show type stuff became a big deal. The real world was already out. But things like MTV's True Life weren't out yet. And for all we know, Radio Diaries influenced that because it's the exact same format. MTV's True Life was like True Life, I'm anorexic or whatever it is. That's exactly what Joe had been doing. So he did all that. But my my documentary, my you know, my Jeff Rogers Hafkin ended up being on like NPR's Best of the Millennium mm-hmm. CD or whatever it is. So it ended up being a big deal. I think he is so good at seeking out the right chemistry between two people and he makes magic. I he's he's great. I was thinking out of all the subjects he could have chosen, teenagers, that's uh, just the last resort for anybody to make responsible and reliable. I think it took me like a year and a half to send him back his tape recorder. Like he'd periodically be like, Jeff, can I get my tape recorder? I'm like, oh sure any day. Not because I was doing anything with it, just because I just couldn't be bothered. Something I, I said to Joe at that time, but I really was a, a, a juvenile delinquent at that time. I'd been in the eighth grade three years in a row, and I was just messing around in life. And Joe squeezed maybe the only productivity out of me during that time. That was like one of the only times. Great. I was in the eighth grade. I got kept back twice. So I was in the eighth grade three years in a row. Mm-hmm. I was just doing whatever. I wasn't stabbing people. And that, that I was on NPR was like the rare portion of that time where it's like, oh, look, this guy did something positive. Mm. Again, I wasn't selling drugs to preschoolers. I just mean that at a time when I couldn't be bothered to do anything productive, uh-huh. that stands as this thing that like people were so impressed with. So since I didn't really know you mm-hmm. um, back then, mm-hmm. you know, 15, 17 years ago, I see a completely different person. And I think about that quite a bit, like mm-hmm. who I was before coming to the U.S. or, you know, when I was younger. People have no idea. And then when we go out, we put on a show, whether we're at work, mm-hmm. we're in school. But if I were to just meet you, uh, you know, for the first time, like I did a few weeks ago, it really surprised me about anything you said just now because the way I see you, you're more than coherent, okay? Mm. You are emotionally and intellectually, you know, engaged and you're building a business and you're building a podcast. You're, so what What changed? When, when did it change? I think for a long time, I, I had a unique um, circumstance. We had... I had a home that was in some ways loving, but there was also a lot of trouble there. I have a gift for basically intellectual pursuits. Mm -hmm. But when you have that, you don't necessarily learn how to work through things because things just happen for you, right? More than half a success, I would say, is being able to power through the things that you don't enjoy, the things you don't like, things you don't care about, right? So instead, if you you meet a guy who just, let's say, has a natural six-pack Right. That guy might have the six pack that you want. But does he know how to get up in the morning and eat egg whites and work out? No, he just has the six pack. And so in the same way, I I had a a set of mental gifts that let me go through life. But when it came time to do anything challenging or put in the effort or when I was measured by effort instead of by ability, I would always fall short. Mm -hmm. And then again, uh, you know, my parents were having a tough time with each other. Home life not that great, and as a result, I just disengaged and said, "You know what? I'll just skate through life, 
being uh, silver-tongued and, you know, being bright and dazzling people. And it took me a while to realize, like, that only gets you so far. And I didn't realize it because of my good moral nature. I realized it by finally running up against things that I could not dazzle my way through. What happened in your 20s? What was that shift mentally? Especially, I personally find that in my late, like, mid to late 20s, you know, you come through some sort of epiphany where, you know. My epiphany came in the form of a positive pregnancy test. And my very a, a young woman who I had known for a while, but only dated for a brief time, called me and with tears in her eyes, handed me the positive pregnancy test. And that was the time, you know, it stops being all about you. You know what I mean? And so I slowly, slowly realized at this point, I need to be, I need to get good results. It wasn't enough to say, well, they're dumb. If they can't see that I'm gifted or whatever it is, they're stupid. Or I could do it if I wanted to or whatever excuses you tell yourself when people that you thought were beneath you are above you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so at that point, I kind of buckled down, tightened up and started trying to build a life. Uh, around what, what age? Uh, I was, I believe I turned 22. My son was born a month later. Wow. So that's not super young. My mother had my older brother at 15. I know a ton of people that had kids at 15, 16, 17. However, you can look at it by age. You can look at, look at it by preparedness. Mm -hmm. Was I prepared to have a child? Did I have a, a career? No. Did I have a house? No. Did mm -hmm. I even have a car? Uh, no, I did not. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I, was as under, I might as well have been 12 for as prepared as I was to raise a baby. Yeah, wow. I didn't know that about you, and it's uh, it's incredible. Hi there, it's me again. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you were able to learn a few things. If you enjoyed what you heard, it will be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Phase Royal podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Phase Royal podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support. Mom said, don't you think of taking a step in this house? Told you last time, one more time, and you're out. So what now? It's our family worth STU. Then the night black and now slam the door. And then she dropped to the floor. Tears streaming down her face. Said, I can't do it no more. Said, I tried to be strong for you. Keep the family together. But it's healthier this way, and in the end, we'll be better. You clench your fist. She gives you a hug. Tell you she loves you, but you've been drinking too much But you don't quit, instead you rather fuss Then take it to the point to where she can't get up And it makes you feel sick, it breaks your heart Cause you never meant for it to go this far Plus you got a kid who has to live with the scars And can only see you whenever this bars I need a man Don't you worry, no, that won't be us She said, I'd like to know that 
but there's not much I trust It's confusing cause I used to know their love that was And it all went downhill in just a matter of months She said you grow up fast when your fantasies die And nothing comes of wishing on the stars in the sky What if it runs in my jeans? What if I do it to you? Your heart's been broken before Don't let me be the next bruise I said what if the stars brought us together To bring your fantasies back And your beautiful soul Why you been thinking like that? You're not like that Seen it in many a chats You're your own damn person You are not your dad He made mistakes And you learn from them I've made my mistakes Do what I earned from them so we both know what love can be So let's bring back the fantasies Grab my hand, we'll write where we're supposed to be You quench your fist, she gives you a hug Tell you she loves you, but you've been drinking too much But you don't quit, instead you rather fuss Then take it to the point to where she can't get up And it makes you feel sick, it breaks your heart Cause you never meant for it to go this far Plus you gotta get who 